Welcome back. In part two, Marco and I switch gears and talk about why Satan plays such a large role in heavy metal music. We then shift the discussion to why some people think that occultism leads to fascist and Nazi ideologies. And although I was a bit mixed up with my questions, some important points came out of this in the end. Lastly, we talk about Marco's own essay that discusses how sex is actually a very important aspect for some esoteric practitioners. So let's move on now to Kenneth Granholm's essay called Why All That Satanist Stuff in Heavy Metal? Uh, wherein he asks more specifically, why all that Satan stuff in heavy metal? Uh, Granholm discusses how heavy metal's predece- uh, predecessors, blues and rock, were considered the devil's music and goes a bit into the problems that rock bands have had with regard to accusations of being satanic. Uh, one brief reference that Granholm makes is uh, to the band Judas Priest. And here we have uh, a pop culture reference in the trial against this band who were accused of hiding harmful subliminal messages in their music recordings. Um, and if you'll allow me just to give a brief recap for the listeners uh, with context uh, about this uh, trial, in 1985, two young men in the state of Nevada in the United States had been uh, drinking alcohol, smoking marijuana, listening to music, including Judas Priest's Stained Glass uh, LP for around six hours. Um, Unfortunately, both men shot themselves with shotguns and one died immediately. The other was seriously disfigured and died three years later. Uh, The parents of the men sued Judas Priest for damages, claiming that the two young men were brainwashed into suicidal actions. Uh, The accusation, supported by fundamentalist Christian groups, uh, such as Dial the Truth Ministries in 1990, uh, that the band used backward masking to hide commands or tributes to the devil in the song lyrics, was made, along with the claim that this promoted uh, Satanism. Another good example of this is with the Led Zeppelin song, Stairway to Heaven, uh, where the phrase, here's to my sweet Satan, is just a part of a longer text that is allegedly praising Satan. Um, and I'll, I'll uh, supply the, the links uh, in the podcast notes, uh, notes for those who would like to uh, look into this a little bit more uh, deeply. So one must listen to the music backwards to hear these messages, um, but there are there are those like uh, David John Oates who claim that the backward messages can be picked up by the subconscious mind. Now, however, well, let's go back to the trial. Uh, testimony showed that the two men were both from dysfunctional families that included domestic violence and child abuse. Both had dropped out of high school, had job issues. Uh, etc. And all of this information shed light on the fact that the young men were most likely quite troubled due to an array of other factors. So in the end, the judge ruled the band not responsible for the men's actions. 
Now, while it can't be denied that bands use references to the devil or hell or to people well-known in the occult milieu, such as Aleister Crowley, uh, Granholm highlights that most of these references were not satanic in nature at all, but were used as an allegory to reference other things. Uh, the one exception in, in the essay that he states is uh, Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin, who brought uh, who bought uh, Crowley's Bullskin House and who was very interested in Crowley's teachings. But for this discussion... Can you talk more about why blues, rock, and heavy metal are seen as being so dangerous to society, and more specifically, why the figure of Satan or demons or other occult references are found in heavy metal music? Well, uh, first of all, I think it is important to place uh, that story into a broader context, because uh, especially uh, the story of uh, Judas Priest's trial uh, has to do uh, with uh, a particular climate uh, that existed in the U.S. Definitely. Uh, and, and, and this has to do with satanic scare uh, mm-hmm. here. So this is something that uh, began to develop uh, in the 1970s, reached its height in the 1980s. That was really the high moment and then died out uh, in, the, in the 90s, 1990s. And, and uh, this satanic scare were... Was actually based on the idea that uh, there were satanic conspiracies, uh, so satanic groups that were being active. They were organizing all sorts of horrible things in the dark. They would kidnap pe- people, especially children. Uh, they would rape them. They would uh, uh, organize all sorts of um, evil rituals, uh, including orgies, uh, you know, all sorts of sex and uh, human sacrifice and these kind of things. Now, uh, this was based on um, uh, on uh, psychiatric theories that have been long uh, discredited, in fact. Uh, uh, and in fact, this in itself was also part of a broader context of um, reaction to the spreading of new religious movements uh, at the time. So this was related also to the idea of brainwashing, uh, the idea that, that your brain can be washed. So that's also a theory that has been uh, completely discredited. It has no scientific basis whatsoever. So, in fact, this is part of a history that, uh, you know, I think is is long gone to a certain extent. And in fact, even, you know, uh, the idea that you can put uh, secret messages, you know, backward messages that you can only hear uh, on a vinyl, uh, you know, if you play it backwards, it's something that, you know, it's, I think most young people don't even understand what it means because obviously, <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, young people don't have vinyls uh, today, so they cannot play things backwards. Well, so that's, even that's not entirely true. It's not true. Uh, vinyl is vinyls? making a comeback. It is making a comeback. Yeah, maybe maybe for for old people, but uh, I don't know that young people are buying so many vinyls. I, I don't know if you if you know them. I don't. I don't think I know many people who have a turntable and people uh, who are okay, buying vinyl. Well, are they playing them uh, also backwards? I can't attest to that, but I know that they <laughs> that they're buying them. Anyways, no, whether you I can play them backwards or not, point. I mean, it's clear that uh, the, the 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 theory on which this was based had no scientific uh, uh, basis whatsoever. It has right. been long discredited. So that's that's really, I think, the, the most important 
uh, thing that we have to keep in mind. On the other hand, it is true that you, you do find all sorts of references to this kind of material uh, related to Satan uh, or, or Satanism in this kind of music. Uh, but I think we always have to keep in mind that, in fact, we are also dealing uh, with um, a scene that, that you know, has some degree of commercialism. So that, in fact, uh, these groups, in some cases, but as Kenneth Granholm points out very correctly, uh, these are actually the exceptions. Mm. In some cases, some of these groups uh, may have a real interest in esotericism or in satanic material. So there might be a sincere, you know, um, desire, in fact, to express ideas that one can find, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a particular uh, tradition or literature that has to do with Satanism or even more generally with uh, darker forms of esotericism. And in fact, in many cases, this was more for, this is more for the show. In fact, a certain way of, um, uh, you know, of, of uh, dressing yourself, uh, of, uh, you know, creating a, a particular public image, uh, references uh, in the lyrics of the songs, um, uh, the, the visual elements that you have in the in the co- in the sleeves, uh, you know, in the in the covers of the records, which nowadays are even less important. Uh, again, well, less for people who still cling to uh, <laughs> vinyls. But I mean, in the past, you know, you really had this object, uh, the vinyl, the, the thirty-three um, LP round LP, which. You know, it was part of, um, uh, you know, of the culture, of the music culture itself. You would have images, you would have, uh, you know, uh, photographs or even artworks that mm-hmm. would be there. And they would be part of the message that the band or the artist uh, was, was trying to convey. But, you know, for this material, there is an audience. And, and the audience has uh, some ex- expectations. So you are part of a genre. You are part of uh, a particular um, style, and you, you have to conform to it. So you you have to respond to what the expectations of your of the audience are. So I would say that to a significant extent, what we find there in, in this kind of uh, music discourse relates to that, in fact, and that the other thing is actually the exception. So. Uh, even all these preoccupations, uh, you know, this kind of panic, this this moral panic that existed back then, uh, not only didn't have any scientific basis, but it was totally misplaced because, in fact, you know, in many cases, what you find there is actually, uh, you know, half serious. You know, it's it's actually sometimes a bit ironic. Also, you have to read it in the second degree. And this is something that very often the audience uh, itself was very much able to do. And it's not necessarily the case that uh, the typical audience of this kind of um, uh, of bands or this kind of artists would, uh, you know, uh, take all these things at the superficial level and believe everything that these people would say. They certainly enjoy the music, but when it comes to the message, well, you know, if... I'm not sure that it, they, they would actually follow uh, anything that is that is there. And um, again, I would like to emphasize another point. 
you know, with respect to the to the Judas Priest story. But I mean, there are quite a few uh, examples uh, of this. Again, uh, what let's say in very general terms, what society or what a certain portion of society wanted to do there uh, was to uh, find very very easy answers. So you would not look at uh, the social background of these persons. You would not look at what caused. Uh, the problems that these uh, that these persons had, you know, uh, you would not try to uh, find answers to these problems, to social uh, injustice, for instance, uh, inequality, you know, discrimination, these kind of things. No, you would actually put the finger on uh, on rock music, mm. you know, on uh, on heavy metal. Uh, that's 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 ridiculous. So it becomes a scapegoat, an easy yeah. scapegoat. Yeah. And, that, and that's, uh, you know, a very common uh, mm. social dynamic. It's, it's not even modern, actually. You find it uh, right. in all periods, in all places. It's neither modern uh, nor Western, actually. It's, it's scapegoating, which is mm. uh, probably a very human uh, uh, reaction to situations of stress, situations yeah. of, uh, you know, where, where you, you, you don't find an answer or you are not able to, uh, develop a complex answer to a complex problem, well, then the answer is just putting the finger on the, the weakest and most fragile uh, thing that happens to pass by at that moment. Right. The, and the devil seems to be an easy scapegoat in this instance, then, with regards to the heavy metal music. Yeah, but uh, I have to say, I mean, Kenneth Grenon is right in his essay because he points out that, in fact, you know, this was also done, uh, you know, and intended as a provocation. Mm. So that, in fact, the, the antinomian, so to speak, or the, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the kind of provocative element was done, you know, was there with, uh, with a purpose. In fact, these people wanted to shock. They, they certainly were against uh, certain uh, social conventions. So it was not... You know, I, maybe I put it a bit too strongly uh, earlier. It was not just about commercialism. It was not just responding to uh, the, 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 you know, the fantasies of a certain audience. In fact, there was also a certain kind of social discourse there that is that is particularly interesting. So, uh, promoting an alternative, a radically alternative vision, you know, of uh, of society, for instance, you know, uh, something that goes against uh, the grain. And, it, and and then you understand, okay, then it makes sense also that society, mainstream society or the establishment would respond to that, you know, mm. it would respond to the provocation. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting dynamic in itself. And if it's uh, uh, considered provocative and a statement against uh, perhaps a, a majority uh, way of thinking about something, then the devil in this case fulfills that adversary role uh, very well. Absolutely. I mean, you, you, you see this also in literature. You see this in, uh, in, uh, in Milton, uh, you know, Paradise Lost. Uh, you find it in, uh, uh, in uh, Lucifer as a romantic hero. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a coincidence that uh, when Madame Blavatsky creates the Theosophical Society and then wants to uh, found a, a periodical, he calls it Lucifer. <laughs> Why? Because it shows that there is something about, uh, you know, uh, exploring 
you know, a radically alternative vision of reality and perhaps also of society. And this connects so well with uh, the figure that has been considered uh, by mainstream Christians and, you know, I would say by Christians generally as the adversary, as the enemy. Mm -hmm. So we want to be on the other side. Right, right. So uh, Granholm does mention that uh, one particular subgenre called black metal, or as it was later called ritual black metal, does attest to be involved with occult practices and does self-identify as being satanic. Um, I was wondering if you could explain a bit about how this uh, type of thinking does connect to esoteric or occult groups. If you can say anything about that. Well, as I was saying, I mean, uh, in fact, we are dealing with uh, a landscape, you know, a scene that is extremely diverse. And uh, it's certainly very problematic to, to, to generalize mm. and to say, okay, it's, it's all uh, fake. Uh, it's, it's only for the show. And uh, no, in fact, there are groups and, and, uh, uh, and Kenneth Granholm uh, mentions them, describes them, where uh, the, the interest for certain practices, for certain ideas, uh, is actually sincere. You know, for, from what you can tell, uh, it seems like that uh, the people who are involved in these groups um, are not just interested in a, in, a, in a purely commercial or even artistic discourse, per se, because, you know, it could also be an artistic discourse that is, you know, not necessarily pushing it in the commercial direction. Mm-hmm. Um uh, but still not necessarily interested in, in the esoteric side of things. Um, no, where you, you actually see a deeper involvement. And the, the interesting thing is that in some cases, these groups, by the way, this, uh, you know, the groups that uh, kind of Gran, Granholm uh, talks about uh, are mostly from uh, the Scandinavian or Nordic uh, area. Uh, so that's, that's interesting in itself. I mean, this is a phenomenon that... Uh, that has a following, that has an audience elsewhere, but in terms of groups, it has, you know, has developed particularly in that uh, in that area, in that region. And the interesting thing is that uh, in some cases you can see how some of these groups, how some of these bands are actually connected to real esoteric groups, that there is a kind of almost like an overlap or, or certainly a strong connection between these. So you can see... Well, in that case, okay, it's 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 not a joke. It's not just right. uh, for fun, but there is something more there. Mm. Okay, well, thanks for going uh, more in depth about Kenneth's uh, essay. Let's move on now to uh, Julian Strubus' essay. Doesn't occultism lead straight to fascism? And this idea uh, is so widespread. And references to it are found just about everywhere. And my popular uh, culture references, here we come again, comics such as Hellboy that was later made into films, uh, another film, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's just to name a few of these uh, cultural references. So there's this idea that seems to be everywhere. And this topic alone could be its own podcast series, uh, and there's a lot to take in when one reads this essay. But just for the sake of this discussion, to try to keep things um, quite straightforward, uh, I'd like to ask you uh, and focus on the questions, 
One, why are Nazis associated with the occult? Two, who came up with this accusation? And is there any truth to it? And three, how did this idea become so widespread? Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, it's a complicated story. It's a exactly. complicated story. So Julian Strube uh, made a wonderful job in uh, trying to disentangle the, mm. the different aspects uh, of this story. So I think, first of all, in the title, you don't find Nazism, you find fascism. So that's that's, uh, that's an interesting that's an interesting point, and uh, it's it's not uh, necessarily a small detail because um, traditionally now fascism refers uh, not only to you know the, the political movement that emerged in Italy in the interwar period, but more generally to a political phenomenon that was you know present in Europe and also outside of Europe. And, and it still is today. So in, in, in different forms, in different contexts, but that still has some commonality. So it can still be brought back to this umbrella term uh, of fascism. Whereas Nazism usually really refers to, you know, the, the German political movement that, that emerged uh, also in the same period, interwar period in Germany. Uh, so uh, why, why is this distinction important? Uh, it is important because there are actually two different claims that can be made. And they actually have uh, different uh, relevance for, for, for our discourse. Okay. So the first one would be fascism generally, you know, as a certain kind of political phenomenon, uh, that has to do with the rejection of democracy, with the rejection of the, you know, generally of uh, uh, democratic values. Uh, it's based on the idea of dictatorship. Uh, it's very often based also on ideas of discrimination against particular groups, you know, and so on and so forth. So that that this is connected to esotericism. That there is a kind of structural, uh, phenomenological connection between fascism and esotericism. Now, that's, that's actually a very broad claim. And it's not the same thing as saying Nazism, you know, the historical movement and, and, and party uh, that, uh, you know, that, that took shape in Germany in the interwar period was related to uh, occultism. You know, that's a more specific thing right. eh? because it relates to one particular uh, episode to one particular movement mm -hmm. to particular persons, whereas you know um, the, the, the former claim is much much broader, and it's a claim that has been made by quite a few authors. It has been made by Theodor Adorno, the famous uh, German philosopher. Mm -hmm. uh, it has been made by uh, Umberto Eco, Italian intellectual of uh, international reputation, now now also dead. Um, so the idea that, in fact, there is something inside of fascism and something inside of esotericism that somehow uh, makes the two connect. Uh, that uh, Okay, this has to do with ideas about irrationalism, that, in fact, fascism is often connected to irrationalism, and because esotericism is also irrational, then the two must go together, and so on and so forth. So this, is, this kind of ideas. <clears throat> now, uh, this idea, obviously, uh, is weak. This claim is weak. Why is it weak? 
it's weak because it doesn't stand uh, the, the, the test of the historical record. Now, if you look back and uh, analyze the, the many forms that esotericism uh, has taken throughout history, going back to, you know, to ancient times, you realize that uh, there is no simple political equation of esotericism. Um, when it comes to translating uh, esotericism politically, you can have all sorts of different positions. You, you can have progressive liberal uh, attitudes. You can have reactionary conservative attitudes. Uh, so you have a very, very diverse, complex uh, situation. And it's yeah. just impossible to, you know, to make a kind of linear connection between esotericism and one particular political option. This right. is, is just, you know, historically, it's just not true. You know, it just takes, it doesn't take too long, in fact, uh, once you start looking a little bit closer at the historical record to realize that, you know, and if you look, especially at the 19th century, what you find in terms of movements um, uh, in in the 19th century and even early 20th century, you, you realize that most of these movements actually were more on the progressive liberal side right. than on the conservative side, mm-hmm. right? So... Clearly, that kind of very, very broad claim is really untenable, as, as far as I am concerned, the way, the way I understand it, and also the way uh, Julian Strube understands it. Now, if we talk about the other claim, the more specific claim, the connection between Nazism and, and uh, occultism, that's a different story, of course, mm-hmm. because there, in fact, the, the connection really existed, and it's, it's difficult to deny it. Uh, perhaps the complication is. Uh, trying to determine the extent of this connection. So how deep really this connection was. And uh, on this problem, in fact, there is already uh, quite uh, a large literature. You know, it's not something that uh, has not been studied. Uh, And there I would make a different kind of distinction that that is quite important because on this subject, there is on the one hand serious um, uh, scholarly literature that starts uh, as far as back as far back as uh, at least uh, the 1960s, I would say, with uh, George Mossy, and that has uh, a very important moment uh, in the 1980s uh, uh, with Nicholas Goodrich Clark, who published a very important book, uh, originally his PhD dissertation on the occult roots uh, of Nazism. And to a certain extent, this was really the book that, um, you know, in a certain sense, set the record straight. So, so that really uh, analyzed um, what was true and what was more uh, mythical in this connection between Nazism and, uh, and occultism. Now, of course, there was a lot more work to be done and uh, it was not possible for Goodrich Clark to cover uh, the, the whole of the subject. So, in fact, there is still work to, to be done there. Uh, but this was serious scholarship. And, and Julian Strube, to, to, of course, uh, who is the author of the essay, has contributed also very importantly to this discourse, but quite a few other scholars are doing that. So that's one aspect. But then there is another uh, literature, uh, you know, form of literature that has developed uh, that presents itself as being non-fictional. So 
but it's also not scholarly. You know, it, it doesn't want to say that it's based on fiction. It's, it doesn't say that it's myth, that it's legend, but still it is actually fictional because, uh, uh, it, it, you know, it's based on speculations, on uh, unfounded hypotheses, and so on and so forth. So this is actually the literature of Nazi occultism. This begins also in the 1960s um, uh, with uh, a very famous book that was published um, in the very early 60s, and it was titled The Dawn of the Magicians, The Dawn of the Le Matin des Magiciens. I think in English it's called The Morning of the Magicians. The book I have uh, has The Morning, the morning of the Morning of the Magicians, yeah, you're right, yeah. The Morning of the Magicians. Uh, and in this book, you, you actually already had uh, the, the, you know, all the points that were later developed by uh, by this by this literature. So all these kind of fantasies uh, and hypotheses, which which were actually you know, uh, yeah, interesting. Uh, you know, uh, they 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 certainly were fascinating, but they had no historical basis. Uh, so. Yeah. Uh, actually, they uh, they didn't explain anything, but rather they complicated, they, they obfuscated the, the historical record. So this is a literature that has developed uh, considerably over the years. It was particularly um, uh, visible in the 1970s, 1980s, uh, in France, in the UK. Um, and it's clear that, you know, if it had this kind of... Uh, uh, of success, it's because it had an audience. So these kind of subjects always uh, attract a particular audience. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. it's clear that when you have an audience, you have people who are going to, uh, you know, to 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 use that opportunity, you know, to write something that uh, can sell. Right. Okay. So uh, I think that today we are in a better position. I think to, to you know to make uh, the difference between what is historically uh, validated, what is historically real, and what is more on the side of invention and, and fantasy. So, you know, to conclude, in fact, yeah, uh, there was such a connection between Nazism and, uh, and occultism. This connection, in fact, was much smaller than uh, people have tended to think or have liked to think. There were quite a few... Um, uh, persons in the Nazi party, even at the top of uh, the Nazi movement and party, who were interested uh, in these kind of subjects. Rudolf Hess, Heinrich Himmler, for instance, they were certainly interested in this kind of stuff. There were others who were not so interesting. Hermann Göring, for instance, uh, couldn't care less, <laughs> quite right. honestly. Right. Right. And even Hitler himself you know, it turns out that, uh, you know, there are a few hints here and there that maybe he had read, uh, you know, certain literature that is, you know, somehow related to Ariosophy and this kind of stuff. But actually, he was too much of a realist politician to give really too much importance to this kind of stuff. He could play, perhaps, with this kind of stuff in order to create a certain image of the Nazi party, which was actually successful, because he also had to deal with his own audience. You know, the, the, the whole paraphernalia, these references to an ancient Nordic Germanic past. I mean, this was, you know, this was a construction mm. that hit a spot on 
the the imaginary of uh, you know of the German people at the time, or a portion of the German people at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that he believed in this kind of stuff, mm, that, that's that's not very likely. Well, I'm glad that uh, that we're talking about this because one of my goals as well with this podcast is to talk about misconceptions. And uh, I think that there are a lot of misconceptions uh, surrounding this topic, especially within popular culture, that... Um, that Hitler was a member of the Tula Society and was involved in occult rituals. I mean, there's all types of stories. But as you pointed out, with a particular uh, fictional literature that poses as uh, nonfiction, it's a easy, an easy scenario that people are going to not understand uh, what's really going on because they're not privy to all of the historical information. So I think that's why it's important for historians to step in and say, wait a minute, we've got something else going on here. But yeah, I think that's, that that's clearly, yeah, that's that's clearly our mission. Uh, and uh, and I think this is also, uh, you know, in part what we wanted to do with uh, Hermes Explains, mm. in the sense that uh, we wanted to give uh, information that is uh, reliable, about subjects that usually people wonder about. You know, exactly. they ask themselves this question. So also the general public, they, they have this thing about fascism and, and esotericism, uh, you know, in their ears. Uh, and then they say, oh, well, there must be something true there, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it's it's important for us to, yeah, as, as a kind of social mission, so to speak, uh, to, to, to make these kind of distinctions and to explain, you know, okay, well, this makes sense uh, historically. This makes a bit less sense right. historically. And this is completely crazy, actually. You can just forget about it. Right, right. So I think that's a very good thing. So thank you for explaining that. So now I've saved the best for last, and that's your essay. And ah, that, well. <laughs> that deals with the question, but what does esotericism have to do with sex? So yeah, I think everybody's because ears, mind, but because it's sex, right? <laughs> everyone's ears are going to prick up right now. We're like, oh, what sex? Uh, I think that this uh, probably is a topic that uh, not many lay people uh, know about, or if they have heard about esotericism and sex, they might uh, think of tantra. But as your essay uh, explains, it's uh, much much more than than just that. Um, you list four ways that sex is actually a very important aspect in esoteric practice and thought. Uh, could you briefly go through these aspects and explain what these are? Yes. Um, well, obviously, the relationship between uh, sex and, and uh, esotericism is, is actually quite uh, complex. And uh, it was impossible in this short space because obviously we, we also had, uh, you know, limitations right, right. Uh, with respect to the space that we had at our disposal. So obviously you, you could not really cover everything in depth. Right. Uh, and, right. This, and also this was not really the intention from the beginning. But at least I wanted to show how diverse and, and complex this relationship is. And I think, yeah, there are these four, uh, these four aspects. Um the, the, the first aspect is the idea that, in fact, eros, uh, um, understood here as, you know, sexuality in general, so uh, eros, of course, is the Greek word for, for sex, 
uh, or love or you know it it actually covers different uh, it, it's not you know perfectly translatable into uh, into our modern languages but that eros um is in fact um a kind of uh, key to understanding how the universe uh, functions that it, it, it's one of the core aspects of uh, of the universe uh, and it's it's a kind of um, yeah of uh, uh, let's say law uh, of how the universe functions. And it's based on the law of attraction, of course, that eros uh, is how uh, things are attracted to each other, not just um, human beings, but also everything that exists in the universe, as if the universe uh, was like a, 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 a very big um, organism, big living being that is also moved by uh, by passions and emotions and that things that are within this are also attracted to each other in very special ways. So uh, this idea is an idea that originally you find uh, in, in Plato uh, that has its own history by itself and then we find it back uh, in very important uh, uh, authors of Western esotericism in the uh, in the early modern period, in the Renaissance, uh, like Marsilio Ficino, for instance, or Giordano Bruno. And it's clear that um, this idea of Eros as one of the main aspects of reality uh, has a lot to do with magic also, because uh, uh, magic is a technique that allows you to understand how this law of attraction functions, and if you understand how it functions, then you are able to act on it and to manipulate reality, uh, for instance, to make uh, things happen, but especially also to, 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 uh, to bind uh, people to you, to bind objects to you. This is especially what you find, for instance, in, uh, in Bruno, uh, in, uh, in some of his uh, treatises that he, he wrote about magic. The vinculis is a very famous one, so it's it's about binding. Uh, how do you bind people? Yeah, you bind them also by understanding how this law of attraction uh, functions. The second aspect is um, the use of sexual symbolism. Uh, so in, um, uh, in esoteric literature, uh, you often find, in fact, uh, uh, the use of sexual symbolism. And this happens not just at the textual level, but also at the visual level. If you think about alchemy, this is something that uh, happens quite frequently, actually. So, obviously, uh, many manuscripts and, and, and alchemical texts have a very important uh, visual component. You have images there, and some of these images are sexually connotated. So, you have sometimes even um, the, the image of a sexual intercourse, for instance, uh, or you have, you know, images that somehow have uh, a sexual element in them, like uh, the, the androgyne, you know, this figure that has both uh, masculine and feminine aspects into one single being. So, uh, obviously, these kind of images or, or, or these kind of references that also come back then in the textual uh, part of, uh, of this tradition <clears throat> can be understood uh, metaphorically. So they refer to, uh, in the case of alchemy, to particular processes, mm -hmm. to, you know, to, to particular moments of transformation. Um, so the sexual intercourse may refer, you, you may find, for instance, the intercourse of a king and the queen. What yeah. does it stand for? Well, 
it can refer, for instance, to the union, to the, to the bringing together of two different metals or two different substances. Mm-hmm. Eh? So that, that would be the explanation. But all these um, uh, metaphors and all these images can be read at different levels, you see. So it can refer uh, to, to actual substances, actual metals, but maybe it also refers to something else. Maybe it's a key to understanding also other kind of secrets and, and, and mysteries, you see. So this is something that you find. So this sexualized language is something that you find uh, quite often uh, in esoteric literature. It's, it's something that comes back. <clears throat> then the third aspect is um, uh, the use of magical practices in order to uh, deal with problems that have to do with the sexual sphere. Uh, and this is something that you find uh, especially in popular forms of magic. So things related, for instance, to sexual potency, uh, women who are not uh, able to become pregnant, uh, or people who, you know, uh, want to break up the relationship of somebody else because they want to, you know, be with one of the persons uh, involved in this relationship. Uh, So all sorts of things related to the sexual sphere may be the object of particular magical practices or also other forms of esoteric practices. And so in this case, they are not so much, you know, the subject of the practice, but the the object of of the practice, because the practice itself may not be uh, particularly sexual in itself. You know, the the, the target, the the goal of the practice is sexual, but but not necessarily the practice itself, the technique that you are using in, in itself. And then the fourth uh, aspect, the, the, fourth, the fourth way in which uh, sex and esotericism can be related to each other is um, a modern development in the history of uh, Western esotericism, and it is the emergence of what we call sexual magic. And this is actually the use of sexual intercourse, of sex, uh, as uh, esoteric practice. So in this case, it's not so much about the, the intended goal uh, of the esoteric practice, but it is actually the technique itself that becomes sexualized. So you actually use sex as part of uh, the magical or esoteric practice. This is something modern. Uh, it emerges, uh, as I said, in uh, in the 19th century. In the West, of course, in the uh, uh, let's say, especially in a Christian context. Because if you go uh, in other cultures, then you may find sexual practices that are associated with all sorts of spiritual meaning. You have it uh, in China, for instance, with Tao. You have it uh, in India with Tantra. You, you, you know, these are traditions that go back much further uh, in time. Whereas uh, in a Western context, uh, it appears to be something a bit more recent. This is controversial, perhaps, to some. Some other scholars may have different ideas. Um, they refer, perhaps, to examples in, uh, in Gnosticism. They refer to other examples, uh, more recent examples, uh, in 18th century Freemasonry, whatever. Honestly, I am a bit skeptical, and until now... I fail to see any hard evidence of real, actual sex being used in these kind of practices. Many often what we see is that there is a literature uh, 
projecting particular uh, sexual practices onto other groups. You know, they are claiming that uh, particular groups are using these practices, but this is not in the first person. This is usually something that that is said in order to stigmatize uh, other people, you know, and and cast them in in a negative light. So, and this is precisely what is being done with uh, with the Gnostics, you know, by uh, by the Church Fathers, by early Christian writers. But but this is something that you know, in in the context uh, of uh, stigmatization of particular religious minorities, religious groups, it's something that you find very very often. Uh, so uh, the idea is that these groups, you know, they meet secretly and they engage in all sorts of uh, uh, bestial. Uh, horrible sexual practices. It, it, it's something that uh, comes up again and again. But whether this is really true, whether there is any, you know, hard evidence that this really happened, this is the question. And mm. to be honest, before the 19th century, I failed to see any real evidence for that. Staying on this aspect, the fourth aspect of the the sex magic. Why is this cons or this aspect so important to esotericists? So if we're not if we're not trying to make them out to be obscene and and the like, but that people who are actually wanting to use this, why is that important in in this modern context? Well, first of all, I would say that it is important to some esotericists some. and not to all of them because okay, uh, sexual magic, <laughs> yeah, sexual <laughs> magic is not something that is being practiced by everybody. Correct. That's and I would say that if you if you probably Probably if you take uh, the whole uh, esoteric uh, landscape of the 19th and 20th century, well, it's hard to, to make statistics, but I would rather tend to believe that uh, the practice of sexual magic, uh, you know, re- remains an exception. It's not something that is practiced by everybody, right. you know. In, uh, uh, although it is also true that it's practiced more than we would think. Because sometimes people do practice it, but then they don't say it. They are being discreet about it because they are afraid precisely of the stigma that might be attached to it. So there is a lot of research that still has to be done Mm. on this. this. Anyways, for some esotericists, it was certainly very, very important. Not only just important, but the key of everything. Mm. You know, if you take the case of Alistair Crowley, that I have studied a bit, it's clear that for Crowley, <clears throat> starting from a, a certain moment in his life, there is no uh, uh, more efficacious uh, thing than the practice of sexual magic. This is a discovery that he makes uh, at a certain point, and it becomes really the overarching method that he uses from that moment on for himself. This is what he practices himself, this is what puts as the most important secret, you know, uh, actually, it's not even him who puts it as the most important secret, because at, at some point he becomes a member of a group where the secret is theoretically already there. Mm. Uh, so, and this is where he learns it himself, but he becomes part of, uh, of this discourse, and he also claims that, in fact, this is the most important esoteric practice that you can, you know, that you can have. There is no more important practice than this. Okay. So why is this so? Well, uh, I think that uh, it has to do with the fact that sex 
is a very powerful thing. It's a very powerful thing. Uh, psychologically, socially, it's clear that it, it releases a certain kind of, uh, of power. We might call it emotional. We might call it, uh, you know, psychological, whatever. But it's clear that there you have a reservoir, so to speak, of energy that, you know, becomes available when people use it. And uh, I'm not talking about, you know, the, the, let's say the subtle energy or the spiritual energy. You know, I'm, I'm not making any claim at that level, but I'm, I'm really talking about the, 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 the psychological energy, you know, the emotional energy that is really there. So I think that the moment people starting to use this, to realize that this was an available option for esoteric practice, but people realized that uh, for them, this was really working. This was really, you know, meaningful, and it, it, it made sense. It made total sense mm-hmm. to them. As I said, again, you know, the fact that uh, there is such um, a sensitive aspect in the use of sex, that sex has been, you know, associated with stigma also, makes it easy to understand why then it is also so powerful. You know, it's again the power of fascination. Yeah. Things that are forbidden, things that are hidden, you know, immediately become interesting. You know, they 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 acquire a certain kind of power just because of that, just because they're forbidden. Indeed. You know, and, and people, other people don't want to touch them, say, oh you know what? Yeah, I am going to do it. So uh you know that's for people who don't like uh, conventional things mm-hmm. that, you know, want to go for a more antinomian kind of perspective. And Crowley obviously belongs to that category. Yeah. It's certainly the, 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 the typical guy who wants to do the different thing, wants to do the other thing. It's clear. So I, I think that certainly it has to do with that. And then I, I don't know that this has been really you know, uh, investigated so much, but uh, we have come to, we certainly have come to realize now that esotericism is historically very much related to altered states of consciousness. So this is something that, I mean, it was even the, the general theme of the SRI conference last year here in Amsterdam. Now, if this is true, it is also true that orgasm is a fantastic way and, a, you know, and, and an easy way. It, it's it normally, uh, it's actually an easy reach for, for uh, most people mm-hmm. to achieve an altered state of consciousness, right? right? Mm-hmm. So I think that, uh, in fact, that kind of uh, energy, you know, the, the perceived energy that you can receive from that moment, you know, of exaltation, uh, we, which can easily be related to, you know, a mystical experience mm-hmm. in a certain sense. Well, it, it's clear that, from there to the moment in which you, you would start to see the magical potential of this, I think the step was actually quite short. And, and, and many esotericists have taken it. Very interesting. You also mentioned that the United States uh, plays an important role in this type of magic. And why, why is that? Well, that's an interesting thing because I think... There is a widespread idea that uh, the use of sex uh, for magical purposes and, uh, you know, in the context of Western esotericism actually emerged in Europe. And this is a bit of a, uh, of a misapprehension because I think that, in fact, 
if you look at the beginning of this, uh, there are quite a few authors who were actually in the U.S. And the very first one, the one who really formalizes the use of sex in, in, in an esoteric context, in a magical context, is actually Pascal Beverly Randolph, who is yeah. an American mm-hmm. spiritualist. So it's clear that uh, the, 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 the U.S. in the 19th century offered kind of fertile soil uh, for the emergence of this particular discourse or, and, and also for these particular practices. And so I tried to wonder why this was, uh, this was the case. And I think that uh, this has to do with the fact that uh, the United States, certainly in the 19th century, were a much more mobile and flexible social environment. So that, in fact, religious diversity was certainly much easier. To, I mean, there were religious persecutions and uh, all sorts of, you know, uh, difficult moments also for this religious diversity in the U.S., but certainly compared to the situation uh, at the time in Europe, it was certainly possible to experiment with all sorts of alternative beliefs and alternative ideas. It is not a coincidence that spiritualism, which is incredibly innovative, you know, radically innovative in, 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 the, in the religious field, it's something that comes from, uh, from the U.S., and you have a large number of new religious movements that are originated also in the U.S. Uh, in the 19th century, uh, the Mormons, uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, and, and, and so on and so forth. So this points to the fact that the U.S. offered perhaps a, a more favorable environment for the emergence of uh, and for the practice uh, of these ideas. Uh, certainly this has to do with the fact that, um, you know, in that period, even, even the, 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 the control, the political control and social control of, uh, of the government, uh, you know, of the federal government, was actually limited. And there were huge portions of territory that, you know, were still being colonized yeah. at the time. So, in fact, suppose you were being persecuted in one place, you, you, you would move further further west, further west, you see? And then you would find yourself a spot, a place where you would be free to do whatever you liked. And that's exactly what the Mormons did, by the way, mm-hmm. you see? So I think that's clearly the reason why, you know, it is especially in the United States that this particular discourse related to the use of sex in esotericism uh, emerged and developed. And let's not forget also other communities that are loosely related also to esotericism, that were also engaging with all sorts of um, sexual experimentations, like uh, the Oneida community, for instance. So clearly in the U.S. it was possible to do things that, uh, well, for Europe would come perhaps a bit later. Right, right. Fascinating stuff. I really want to thank you for uh, taking the time to talk about these these essays and and your essay also, uh, I find this to be very interesting uh, material to talk about. But it's not the type of material that you would just normally, you know, you wouldn't strike a strike up a conversation with somebody about sex magic, generally speaking. So why not? Uh, <laughs> why not? Yeah, I guess I do it all the time. <laughs> 
Well, okay, so maybe maybe that's my problem then, okay. But uh, in any case, that I have the opportunity now to strike up a conversation about it. I, I really appreciate that. Thank you for talking about this uh, this really special book, and I hope that this discussion has uh, made uh, people interested to, to go out and, and read it for themselves. So... Um, Again, thank you for uh, making the time to talk with me today. Thank you very much, Stefan. It was a pleasure to be here with you. I hope you've enjoyed this very broad offering of topics. The book, Hermes Explains, has much more to offer that we couldn't cover in just one interview. For example, a few of the other essays that you can read are... What does popular fiction have to do with the occult? Religion can't be a joke, right? The kind of stuff that Madonna talks about? That's not real Kabbalah, is it? If people believe in magic, isn't that just because they aren't educated? And surely born-again Christianity has nothing to do with occult stuff like alchemy. So I hope you'll consider giving this great book a read. And as always, links to people and things referenced in this interview will be provided in the podcast notes. Uh, Please check out my social media for extra information uh, if you're interested. And thanks for listening.